it's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment, will imagine an entire design renaissance. So the internet is not evolving at random. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. Uh, so everybody acknowledges that these are valuable entities. They provide value in our life. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. But there's also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, your host, as I get into part two of the interview I did with Nathan Gilmore. In part one, we left off with him giving some comments about some of the parallels between the historical control of information and fear of information and access to information compared to the modern times that we have with the internet and the access that we have. And he wrapped that up with talking about how revolutionary it is for us to have the ability to relay information and get information out there no matter who we are. We have this expansive amount of authorship that is out there that is putting content out there that people can access and that this level of information, this level of authors that exist today is something that is revolutionary. It is new. It is different. And he just wrapped up talking about that. So I'll pick up where we left off there, and I'll start back today for this episode with my response and my further questions and the rest of the interview with Nathan Gilmore. So enjoy. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a big difference that we have today, and it has a huge impact on us, and I agree that I think that it will have a huge impact as we move forward and how society evolves and how education evolves and how people's thinking and ideology will evolve, and I think that that's something that is a very large factor in all this. You mentioned that with the printing press, you had literacy rates that rose a lot because people had more access and they wanted to read some of these theological ideas and they wanted to read the Bible for themselves, things like this. And today, we already have most people being literate. That's not really an issue we have today. But one thing that we don't have, I would argue, is the discernment aspect of literacy. People can read and write today, and that's true, but a lot of people have a hard time really understanding what their reading really means and getting a grasp on where it's coming from, some of the influences, having some context. People are struggling with that. We see a lot of movements today for having these big tech platforms censoring their content and filtering their content and fact-checking and all these things that my argument would be common people should be able to figure out. A lot of it's fairly obvious, and you should be able to get multiple perspectives from multiple angles and think for yourself and figure out what's actually true and what you want to believe and what you don't. 
But it seems like that aspect of literacy is lacking. I would relate it. You've been mentioning the trivium with grammar, logic, rhetoric. I would argue that maybe we have the grammar side of this, but the logic and the rhetoric side, that's still building. People are starting to realize how to discern this information and what it means, how to put it together, maybe that logic side, as well as the rhetoric side of how to present that. And like you mentioned, people can present information all over the world in the millions, and this is a big deal. So what do you see with, you're in the education realm there, and you are a teacher, so you do see a lot of students that are coming through. Is this type of true literacy, I would say, do you see that being something that is increasing and that students and people in society today are becoming more aware of, or do you see us still largely lacking in that area? I think education is still catching up, frankly. Uh, I think that the movement, uh, at least since the 1980s and certainly since the 1990s when the World Wide Web starts to blow things open, uh, is towards what I would call media literacy. So in other words, uh, you know, Aristotle talked about rhetoric as the power to see what is persuasive. Uh, and to discover what is persuasive. And that seems to be what media literacy is about. I think what we are discovering uh, is that the advertising industry and the propagators of bad ideas uh, are always going to be a step ahead of media literacy education. So, for instance, uh, when I was taught media literacy in the 1990s and when I started teaching it myself, uh, in the first decade of this millennium, uh, there was almost no emphasis on humor. And one of the ways that I've definitely taught, uh, changed my own teaching, there we go, uh, is that I read probably eight or ten books about how to do stand-up comedy. Not so that I could become a comic, uh, although you know I'd like to think that I'm a funny guy, my students disagree, uh, but because so much of not only advertising but also politics but also religious discourse, because so many things now rely upon humor as one of its primary instruments, that if you're going to understand it, you have to take that extra step and actually learn the structure and the workings of humor, all right? Now, as far as the discernment goes, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with that humanistic education. And this is where I really see the need in education, because one unfortunate development, and again, I, I blame Bill Clinton on a lot of things in the world, and this is one of them. One, uh, I don't even want to call it an aftermath, but it, because it seemed to be his very uh, explicit goal in his expansion of college education to new demographics, which by the way, I'm, I'm all in favor of expanding college education to broader demographics, but his aims were commercial. They were economic. They were developing the workforce. I think that, again, a, a more humanistic education, which, by the way, can run alongside professional training, and I hope that it does, because that's what I'm trying to do here at Emanuel College, can add to that uh, a renewed emphasis, if you will, uh, on the virtues. Not only wisdom, uh, but also justice, a sense of what is deserved and what is not deserved. Not only wisdom and justice, but also courage, a notion of what constitutes real danger and what a reasoned response to that danger should be. So again, I mean, I, you know, my approach uh, 
and my colleagues make fun of me all, about this all the time, uh, I am probably the most pervasive user of internet technology day-to-day -day in the classes that I teach. And most of the actual texts that I teach uh, come from before the era when they invented novels. Uh, so I teach old books with new tools. And frankly, I mean, you know, that, that suits me just fine because I think that's where education should be going given the realities that we've got. One thing that I think is different about our moment from the Reformation moment is that the expansion of literacy was a positive theological endeavor. Our theological conviction is that the scriptures, the Bible, should be in the hands of the laity, so therefore we educate in order to reach that goal. I think that education now is to a larger extent playing defense. There are powers in the world that seek out, even if not to outright manipulate, at the very least to influence invisibly the souls and the communities and the minds of human beings. So a large part of what we do when we educate is to give people the capacities to resist that and to assert some agency of their own. Yeah, that would definitely be the goal. I would agree with you. Um, I, I do see a parallel between the role that theology plays back then and the role that politics plays today. And you mentioned how there are powers that be that want to manipulate public opinion. And I, we see that a lot. And I would say that would be the political aspect. Everything is seen through a political lens in today's world. I'm, I would guess that you probably see that in academia as well, although... Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. <laughs> okay, so that, that was my guess. And I believe that in this historical time period we're talking about, everything was filtered through the lens of theology. It was how do we use science or philosophy or some of these other new ideas? How do we use these to validate what the Bible says or better understand what Scripture says? And so everything was seen through that lens. Education, like we said, was filtered through theology. It was all about how to learn about the Bible. That's where it really started. And then when we had this shift from more independent learning and more of the humanistic type and into the humanities as a whole— Hopefully, we are having that shift now where it's not just just getting whatever we're being fed and having this information that is largely corrupted handed down to us without the media literacy and discernment that we should have. Hopefully, that's changing, and hopefully we see that more and more as people make better use of the technology we have. I'm glad that you are experiencing this where you're taking old ideas and classical wisdom and knowledge and using technology to enhance that instead of using it as more of a crutch. I know when I was in college, I had one teacher in particular really stood out to me. We came to class one day and her computer wasn't working and she always taught off of PowerPoints. Well, instead of just teaching the uh, class I, without I her PowerPoint. PowerPoint. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the, the thing that stood out to me here was that instead of just teaching the class without the PowerPoints and talking to us and teaching using a book, you know, whatever form she wanted to do, instead she just canceled class because she couldn't get to her PowerPoints. Ah. And yeah, that's using, that's using technology as a crutch where it didn't seem like she could really handle it without her PowerPoint presentation. Right, right. We see that a lot. We also see that with society writ large in how a lot of people are using technology mainly to entertain themselves 
That's a big issue that I see where we have all this potential to educate ourselves, to learn new things, to be exposed to new things, to really find out what's really going on. But a lot of people are stuck on watching cat videos and scrolling through Facebook and Twitter and getting mad about someone from the other political party and yelling at them and having some online battle of throwing insults and there's not a lot of discourse or discussion or debate or learning that seems to be going on at this point and I would just really agree with you I hope that that is something that is changing I know I do see some movements towards shifts in how people are using technology and how people are learning and that kind of stuff but it is something I worry about if if we really are going to have this shift in education and the shift in how people view the world and use technology versus the historical shift that we did see that was a very positive shift. And at the same time, back then, there was propaganda. There was gossip articles that were being released and printed off. And there was a lot of... There's even pornography that people were using the printing press to create. There's a lot of the stuff we see today. And so... That was overcome at that period in time, and we did have a positive shift. So I agree. I just I hope we have that positive shift. I'm a little doubtful in some areas, and there's a lot of negativity that I see when assessing that situation, but hopefully we are moving. Um, one thing that I did want to bring up is that, like I mentioned, how everything was filtered through the lens of theology, and it seems like now things are filtered through the lens of politics, one of these aspects is philosophy. And we've talked about theology, we've talked about education, but philosophy was something else that was really booming at the time. We had a lot of really big ideas and really big names that most people would recognize today, even if they don't know exactly what those people stood for or what they're known for. At least people would recognize the names, and you had a lot of those that were going on in this time period. And I know there was some influence here with these new philosophies. The the philosophy was influenced by theology as well as the philosophy influencing theology and theological interpretation and society as a whole. Could you talk a little bit about philosophy in this time period as well? Certainly. When we talk about philosophy in the university era of the Middle Ages, uh, I don't do a whole lot of work of, or on rather, uh, that period between the rise of the Germanic kingdoms and the beginning of the university simply because philosophy at that point was largely a monastic affair. And frankly, my research on monastic uh, culture is just too spotty to talk about that. Once we get to the university, though, the big development in philosophy is that unlike uh, Greek-era philosophy, unlike Roman-era philosophy, and really unlike Confucian th uh, philosophy or Taoist philosophy in the East, uh what we get is philosophy becoming a body of knowledge, something more like history and less like devotion. When you talk about the Academy of Plato to go way back, this would have been a society that had verbal disputes to be sure about ideas, but those verbal disputes were for the sake of spiritual development, to use a modern phrase. By the time you get to the university era, prayers and common worship and church services have taken on that spiritual role, so to speak. And so education, ironically enough, even though it is in the Christian era, it becomes a much more secular affair. Now, that gets modified a little bit and in different places uh, when you get to the Renaissance because 
with the new emphasis on rhetoric, uh, you see a lot of writers, uh, you know, Erasmus certainly stands out as one of these, uh, trying to think of another one. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, the good friend of Martin Luther, stands out as another one of these, who really want to emphasize the soul-forming character of education uh, in a way that wasn't necessarily a strong emphasis for education itself in the 12th and 13th centuries. Now, I want to pause and say they did emphasize the formation of souls. It's just that they didn't see education as one of the main agents for doing that. They saw other things, mostly affiliated with church worship, as doing that kind of work. So, uh, you know, what you get is a renewed emphasis on character, as I said, uh, and you get the rise of, I'm, I'm going to call it a, a new kind of filter, uh, and that is the filter of freedom. And it's something that, again, we recognize pretty well uh, in, in our own modern moment. Uh, you talked about everything being filtered through theology. Uh, I hark back to a, a 20th century writer, Kenneth Burke. He was a rhetorician, uh, just way ahead of his time. Uh, but he talked about God terms. And by God terms, he didn't mean differences in theology, although it, could, it certainly could mean that, but rather within a network of, of, of language users. The God terms are those terms within the discussion that basically end a conversation. So if you could demonstrate uh, in a logically valid way that to take a course of action would be to dishonor God then in the 12th century, that pretty much ends the conversation. You don't do that. The God term, if you will, in the modern era where Burke found himself is freedom. And this is where uh, you get, uh, you know, some disagreements in our own moment. Uh, but if you think about it in terms of God terms, uh, it makes a little bit more sense of those disagreements. So, for instance, uh, when we talk about firearms policy, uh, when you have that conversation, the maneuvers that the faction will make that wants to regulate the ownership and the use of firearms is that we need to be free from the danger of random firearm violence. At the same time, those who are in favor of less restrictions on the use and the ownership of firearms will say that what we're ultimately after is the freedom from government interference in our ability to defend ourselves, to take up arms against corrupt governments, so on and so forth. What they have in common is that both of them are trying to establish rhetorically that freedom is the ultimate term. So what Burke said, uh, he didn't talk specifically about firearm policy because that wasn't so much a live question there in the 1940s when he was talking about it, but he did talk about warfare. And he said that what all of the factions in World War II were insistent upon is that they were fighting for freedom. And so it's interesting that, you know, we talk about uh, everything being filtered through politics. I would say that we can take a step further even and say that the rhetoric of freedom is what, is what drives all of those political discourses. Uh, so once again, you know, uh, to kind of backtrack to education for just a moment, this is one of the reasons, again, why a strong liberal education, a strong humanistic education is something that I still remain an advocate of because if you have 20 different websites, 10 of which, you know, give one definition of freedom, 10 of which give another definition of freedom, 
someone who clicks on all 20 will simply have a statistical, you know, 10 to 10 draw. Uh, it is the difficult and time-consuming and painstaking practices of discourse, of dialogue, of rhetoric, of these sorts of things that allow you to get beyond simply these positions exist out in the world to these are the things that we can validly say in an evaluative way about these different discourses. So again, I, I think that you're right that a certain kind of education, namely the relay of bits of information, uh, really should have died 20 years ago. Uh, but, you know, these things take a while to die. But a new kind of education, which is in a lot of ways an old kind of education, is actually more needed than it ever was. Yeah, definitely. You're talking about some overall uh, aspects and how education is presented and given to children growing up and people growing up today. And I have heard the argument often that a lot of this stems from bringing the Prussian education model to America. And it pretty much spread all over the place. I know you had, I think it was Japan that altered their constitution to basically be the exact same as the Prussian constitution. And people that had money and had influence and power, they would send their children to these Prussian schools. It was the only place where you could get a PhD for a long time. And so this model spread all over the world, and there were positive aspects with this. But part of the Prussian education model, I think, goes along with what you talk about with Bill Clinton's motivations of being focused on creating good citizens and good workers and teaching people from more of that perspective to respect authority, to have experts that are in each individual field that will teach them from their expertise this individual knowledge that they need. But I, I don't really see, at least in, in my research, I don't see as much of the the humanism aspect where people are learning things like critical thinking and context and how things are connected together and rhetoric and these aspects that we're talking about are much more needed. Does that sound fairly accurate to you or is that a bit of a stretch and something that people might overblow? It certainly sounds familiar. And I will say that the movement to return to a rhetorically uh, oriented education really begins not very long at all after World War II as Kenneth Burke and his disciple Richard Weaver become very prominent in American educational conversations. Uh, my own alma mater, which is Milligan College up in Johnson City, not far from where you are, uh, established a humanities program there in the 1960s uh, that you know emphasized not necessarily atomized, specialized knowledge, but emphasized Again, the connections between literature, visual art, philosophy, theology, music, so on and so forth. Uh, now, the thing is that uh, among the other things that I've said about history, another one that I'll add to it is that history never happens at the same time at the same place. Uh, so, I mean, right now in 2020, I would say that that humanistic rhetorical education movement is still to some extent an insurgent movement in broadly speaking Western universities. I think that the Prussian model that you're talking about where specialists come together and relay their specialized information to the children of privilege, 
uh, is still, you know, the model for a lot of universities. Uh, I do think, though, that, you know, the interesting moments, and I'll call them interesting moments because I don't necessarily want to put a, a moral evaluation on them yet, are those places where people like myself who are trained at the big research universities uh, nonetheless bring some of this learning of, you know, the rhetorical education that we picked up here and there uh, to bear in places like Emmanuel College. And let me just talk for a moment about the American Liberal Arts College. Uh, usually these places have roots in the 19th century rather than the 20th, but one common thread among them is that they do see themselves in the 20th century, usually the mid to late 20th century, as a very intentional response to the specialization, to the rise of, you know, massive lecture classrooms, to things like this. So, like I said, I mean, there is definitely an insurgent movement in education that's been going on for decades. Uh, it's just that, you know, when it comes time on Saturday to watch your NCAA football game, those are not the schools that have the football teams. Yes, yes. And you talk about how this has been going on for a while, just like how you had all these different reformation movements early on that didn't gain traction. And in modern times, politically, you had all the anti-establishment movements of the 60s and 70s that, yes. although they instituted change, it we still had the state gain more power and get larger and more controls and more regulations and all these different things that that movement was against. And I've covered on my show before some alternative movements in education, luckily some in the public school system, and then largely in areas such as homeschooling and alternatives to college. And so it's nice to hear that there is a professor here that is saying that there are movements within the system, within the university system, that are oriented more towards this um, ideology of learning in a whole factor, not just these individualized, specialized things, but actually learning how they all connect and how all of this applies to us and how to understand them in context. So that is something that gives me hope. I, I like hearing that. Thank you very much. And oh, yeah. one of the other things you mentioned was that freedom is a lens that many things are viewed through. And w one question that popped up in my head when you were talking about that is that Although I agree, and I, the way I drew out the parallel personally, the way I was thinking of it was more Western representative democracy, and that's kind of the equivalent to Christianity of the old times. But the whole idea of a Western representative democracy is that it's based on freedom and liberty, but doing that within the context of having a nation state. And so... I see this, I get this, I agree with these ideals of liberty and freedom. However, it it seems that people don't fully understand what liberty and freedom really are. People say they are all about free speech, they are all about freedom, they're all about liberty, but it seems like there are a lot of contradictions between how people want the state to regulate things or censor things or have an impact on things to limit liberties, but they use this rhetoric of how they want more freedom, but it doesn't really correlate. And so I see that there is a break there between people's, I guess, understanding and discernment 
of maybe the second and third layer thinking of their arguments, people might make a surface level argument for, hey, this will promote freedom. But if you dig a little deeper and see, well, how would that policy actually be implemented? You see that it actually takes away a lot more liberty and freedom than it gains. And that doesn't necessarily mean that a policy is bad, but I wouldn't argue that it's promoting freedom if it's doing the opposite. And the other aspect here that I see an issue with is that I wonder if people are not only wise enough to know what freedom and liberty truly are and the implications of the things they're arguing for politically, but also, do people even care enough to understand these things? It seems like many people are what another guest has referred to as free-range serfs, where people are living under the authority of the rulers, the state, of whoever their local authorities are, and they are perfectly content in their position. They are content with what they have. They are entertaining themselves. They have a job. They can buy the food they need. They can raise a family. They can do what they want. And so largely, they don't really care much about uh, other larger aspects of liberty and freedom or other places around the world. And so those are two things that kind of come up to me is, number one, can people really discern what true freedom and liberty is? And number two, do people care enough to actually teach themselves, educate themselves, or do anything about it? What do you think? Well, let me recommend a book from the period that we're talking about, uh, Desiderius Erasmus, who again is going to come up a lot whenever I talk about this period because he was the prince of the Christian humanists. He's someone that I certainly look to as uh, a source of good questions to pose. He wrote a book called The Education of the Christian Prince, and that might sound like a, a bit of a, uh, you know, monarchical kind of a title to think about in representative democratic America. Uh, but, you know, remember that, you know, among other things, what democracy is, is the, uh, the extension of princedom to all citizens. So it's a book that we can benefit from as well. But what he suggests in that book, and I think that he's he's basically right, is that education should at the very least take as its goal uh, not only to teach the techne, to teach the ways to make things happen in the world, uh, but also to provide occasions for reflections on what is worth pursuing in the first place. And I, I, I think that when you were talking about free-range serfs there, one of my core convictions is that nobody is uneducated, we're just educated differently. I think that the free-range serf, and I'm going to keep using your term here, has been educated to think of the self as ultimately unfree. And I mean unfree in a medieval sense, because a freeholder uh, in a medieval system, especially a a feudal system, but also in imperial systems, uh, was someone who had basic legal authority within the freehold, in other words, within the property Uh, that the law recognized as their property and not other people's property. So the idea is that you have rights that are always connected to responsibilities. I think that one strong change that occurs in the Enlightenment, and I think it's one of the negative changes in the Enlightenment, is the separation of rights from responsibilities. Before the Enlightenment, it was just assumed that if you had a right to bear arms, it was for the sake of protecting neighbor. Uh, That if you had a right to free speech, it was for the sake of propagating truth. If you had a right to assembly, it was for the sake of pursuing justice. And again, 
I think that the Bill of Rights has the right basic instinct to say that the federal government shall not regulate any of those because there's no guarantee that the people with their hands on the levers of power will themselves be just human beings. But I do think that it also assumes, and this is something that unfortunately I think has disintegrated in the, you know, 200, however many years since the Bill of Rights, um, it has disintegrated precisely because uh, we have separated those notions of rights and responsibilities so that responsibility is something that we can commend ethically. It's something that we can point to and say, you should do that. Uh, but it's not something that we necessarily teach as inherently and inextricably linked to every right that you have. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's where uh, I think that, you know, my notion of freedom uh, is different from uh, a lot of modern notions of freedom, but it's not because uh, I despise freedom, but because I think that freedom takes on its best form when it is not the whole, it's not an island, but it is part of a more complex whole that is involved with responsibilities and duties. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It seems like in today's society, personal responsibility is not something that people really seek after. Um, maybe they would prefer to be uh, entertained and lazy and do what's convenient. There are but many... they still insist on having rights. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it, it's a little interesting. There's a definite separation there, and uh, I do see that as well. So going back to some of these ideas of the Reformation, you had mentioned a while ago that there were other people that were involved with the Reformation. You had some of the nobility and some other powers that be that had some influence that might have protected people like Luther was a good example. But were there, what were some of these influences that were kind of behind the Reformation or maybe funded it or pushed it forward that were outside of just a purely religious or theological motivation? I'll start with the most famous one, uh, Henry VIII of England. Uh, he is someone who, early in his career, is genuinely convinced that Martin Luther is a mortal threat to the faith. Uh, and so he actually uh, opposes Luther with his own writings. Uh, he makes very public in England that England is to remain faithful to Rome in matters of faith. And in fact, he is actually rewarded the uh, title Defender of the Faith from the Pope. Later on, of course, uh, partly because I, I genuinely think he has a change of heart, but also related to some political expediencies involving uh, his inability to sire an heir, uh, there is a break with Rome, and England does not become Lutheran by any means, but you know there is a change so that Henry VIII himself becomes the head of a new religious body called the Church of England. And that is, I think, a paradigm that, you know, sometimes people isolate and say that's a Henry VIII thing, but you also see it happening in other places. So, for instance, in Geneva, uh, it is a city that had accumulated a pretty impressive trade culture, a pretty impressive legal culture. It was really in a place where it did not need any empire to sustain it. And, again, I don't want to imply a, a straightforward cause-effect relationship, but it's certainly related to the fact that when Calvin comes to Geneva, Geneva is ready and willing to take on 
uh, the new Reformed faith because of its emphasis on uh, individualism, on, uh, you know, sort of a, a community rule that's rooted in consent, things like this. Um, and likewise, you know, as I said earlier, uh, the princes of the Holy Roman Empire, I genuinely do think that they had a change of heart. I know that there are historians who say uh, this is entirely a power play, uh, that they are essentially Machiavellian figures. I'm not entirely convinced of that. Uh, I really do think that they had a religious change of heart, and I also think that it is true that because of their increased power uh, in the years before Martin Luther's rise, uh, they were able to establish themselves precisely as protesting princes and to establish a political framework that gave Luther's movement uh, enough military protection that it could spread and it could be become a revolutionary force rather than a flash in the pan the way that Wycliffe and Huss were. So, you know, once again, I mean, I, you know, my philosophy of history is that ideas, religion, military, technology, none of these things is, is the single driving force. They're always influencing each other. Yeah, definitely. And I, I see that there are so many different influencing factors in these shifts, as well as we see all these influencing factors in our modern times with technology, with the internet, and with anti-establishment movements, both on the right and the left, and mm -hmm. all of these different shifts in education and things like this. We see that there are lots of different factors here. You talk about how there is this shift in power, and I think you alluded earlier to the fact that we have the creation of the nation-state out of this Reformation movement that ends up being one of the side effects, is that the church loses power, uh, largely, not completely by any means, but they lose a lot of their powers, and at the same time, the nobility kind of steps up and fills the gap, and they're gaining power through this change. And do you think that um, the early Reformers intended for this or is this just a side effect of what was going on with this anti-establishment view against the church given martin luther's single-mindedness and given john calvin's uh just extreme focus on matters of faith i have to think that for them it was a secondary thing uh but it's also true that the modern nation state and i'll, I'll add the very modern notion of the absolute monarch arise out of this historical moment. So in the 10th century, just to pick one at random, something like Louis XIV would have been unimaginable because the king was always sharing authority, not only with the Pope, but also with the monasteries, also with the priests, also with the guilds. All of these things were competing spheres of authority. The king probably had military supremacy, uh, but in other spheres, the king had to defer to those other powers. By the time you get to, uh, you know, the, the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, and then, you know, eventually with the rise of, you know, the French uh, and the English absolute monarchs, uh, which of course get followed by other, you know, very powerful monarchical figures elsewhere in Europe, uh, what you get is kings who, and queens, in the case of Elizabeth, who, among other things, justify their existence because they claim to be the agents that can keep another 30 years war from happening. So, for instance, uh, you know, one, you know, signature uh, feature of the Glorious Revolution of 1688 uh, is that it is a, a wedding, so to speak, 
of the Church of England and a philosophy of religious toleration. As long as you paid your taxes to the crown, and as long as you were willing to be militarily loyal to the crown, uh, you could be any variety of Christian traditions. Uh, and again, you know, this is interesting because it is, in a lot of ways, a simple reversal of what you would have seen in the 11th century, where you could be loyal to any number of crowns, whether that be the crown in Westminster, or whether that be the crown in Paris, or whether that be the crown anywhere else in Europe, but everyone had to be loyal to the Bishop of Rome. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I know that it's a definite political change that happens uh, in the 17th century. I wouldn't call it revolutionary the way that I would call the printing press revolutionary, because in a lot of ways it simply inverts relationships that were already in place. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, for my parallels, I use, as I've mentioned before, the modern state as filling the role of what the historic church did. And then as corporations, they kind of fill this role that the nobility did, where they have influence over a smaller subset of the population, uh, markets when you look at corporations, or small regions when you look at the nobility. And as mm -hmm. the church started losing power through these anti-establishment movements, um, similar to the anti-establishment movements against the state that we have today, like you say, it may not have been something intentional by any means, and probably not, but one of the consequences of this is that someone needs to step in and fill these roles that the church was providing, and people didn't really trust the church anymore, and people largely did not want to have anything to do with the church. They started their own churches. There were many splits, many different denominations. It was a bit of a mess. There was still power there. Religion was still a very large influence on society, just like I would imagine no matter what happens in modern times, politics is still going to be a big deal. You are still going to have states of some kind, even if they're a lot more localized or whatever that ends up playing out to be. But uh, I wonder if corporations are going to be the ones to step in if the states become even more distrusted and people are not going to rely on them as much, not give them as much power, and turn to corporations to provide them with all these things that that the state does today. Do you have any opinion on that? It's a little it's a little bit of guesswork and theory and who knows oh, sure, what will happen. Sure. And, but... and, and William Gibson novels. Yes, uh, yes. But yeah, I, <laughs> you know, that's what I think of when I think of the, uh, you know, the multinational corporations that overshadow national governments. Uh, you know, I, I, it's funny, the, the old cyberpunk uh, tabletop role-playing game was Cyberpunk 2020, so a lot of the people that I used to play that with are making comments about, you know, where's our... Uh, Where's our flying cars? Where's our, you know, this? Where's our that? Uh, but I think that, you know, again, if you look at history as a, a rolling wave rather than a progressive line going up or down, uh, certainly, I mean, we can reasonably expect for power to accumulate and to centralize. Uh, and when it becomes unbearable, when that concentration becomes something that people won't tolerate anymore, we can also reasonably expect that some other entity will arise that will diffuse it again and again you know i mean history moves in waves so that's about what i expect yeah yeah i would i would also not view it as something that some sci-fi presentations give where corporations run the world but i would say more kind of like how the nation state was 
it wasn't the same as the nobility of prior decades. It was something new. I would guess you oh, probably absolutely. have something new. Yep. Maybe my guess overall is maybe like a technocracy that people mm-hmm. feel like the corruption and abuse of power that the state has participated in. Um, that comes to a head, it comes to a boil, and as people start withdrawing some of that power from the state, they want an institution that is going to protect them and that is going to give them what they want without all these inherent corruptions like they see exist in the state. And so I would guess something like a technocracy that inherently would have to be some sort of conglomeration of different corporations and different fields, probably a lot of technology involved there. And a lot of people view the ability to use AI and data and things like this as something that can be applied to governance and might be much more effective and much less corrupt than what we have today. But as you pointed out, no matter what happens, it seems like there is this pattern where things do centralize, things do get corrupted, and they do fall. That's kind of just the way history goes. So to wrap everything up here, there is something that I did want to ask you and leave a little more open-ended with all these parallels that at least I've mentioned with maybe Christianity being Western democracy or the Catholic-Protestant divide being similar to the left-right divide today, or one I haven't mentioned but I have is that the Anabaptist movement is a lot like the libertarian movement of modern times, kind of on the the side there, doesn't really get much attention and probably won't go anywhere, but it has similar ideals at least. Do you have any thoughts or any other parallels that you have between this historic period and some of the these different aspects and things you see in modern times that we might not have brought up yet? Sure. One thing that I have uh, noticed here in the last couple months, and I mean, it, it's not something that I came up with on my own, but it is uh, something that arose in, in my social media circles, is that in the art world, uh, we have a renewed interest in divisions between sort of high art and then art for the masses. And of course, the, the, the locus right now is uh, Martin Scorsese's editorial in, I believe, the New York Times, although it might have been another magazine, uh, where he says that, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are not real cinema. They're like theme parks. Uh, and that has, I think, you know, exemplified a lot of conversations that have been going on really since, I would say, the 1980s, uh, where we start really examining the material conditions that give us what we call art. So, you know, to be sponsored by a Caesar is different than becoming the client of a Medici. And to be a client of a Medici is different than living as a bohemian painter in Paris in the 1890s. And that is different from operating within the studio system in the mid-20th century. And that's different from uh, operating as a content creator in the 21st century. So, one thing that I think is very interesting, uh, kind of as a, an overarching uh, historical inquiry, is to really look at the material conditions that give us what we call art. And one parallel, you know, between this moment and our own uh, is that I really do think that the media that, you know, the sort of uh, cultural conservatives of 60 years ago, like television, cinema, novels, they would have regarded those as sort of, you know, beneath high art. Uh, Those things are taking on a character uh, of real inquiry on their own. And of course, I'm thinking of, you know, the the great, you know, HBO series like The Wire, 
or Rome. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, films uh, that are really taking on, you know, interesting questions, you know, especially Terrence Malick films. Uh, so I think that, you know, in the art world, we can also make some pretty compelling cases that, you know, there are some linkages here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like how medieval art was very focused on symbolism and meaning. There was a lot to it. Just like um, earlier years of making film and these types of things, there was a lot more to the story. It seemed like there was a lot more that was going on behind the scenes. It was There was more intellectual things that you can get out of it, more ideas, whereas now it's more focused on pure entertainment, like the Marvel movies are a perfect example where the plot is not all that complex and there's not a whole lot of social commentary. There's not a whole lot, if you really dig in, to dig into. But we do see that there are some that are starting to come up where they're a little more of a a thinker's media and something that you can really dig into and get some more meaning out of. So hopefully that's a shift we're going into as well. And I definitely see bits of that. So hopefully that's something that we can get. The The last thing I wanted to ask you about was you had mentioned something about a comparison between Machiavelli and I think the alt-right. Could you briefly say what you were talking about for that? Certainly. What I find interesting in Machiavelli, and, and it resurfaces again a few hundred years later with Friedrich Nietzsche, is that where thinkers like Erasmus in Machiavelli's day uh, and then the Victorians, by and large, in Nietzsche's day, they were, to greater and lesser extents, comfortable with the use of power and even the use of violence, so long as it was for the sake of a nobler goal. Uh, and there's certainly critiques to be made of those. What makes Machiavelli interesting, and what makes Nietzsche interesting, and what makes the alt-right interesting, uh, and I've said this on the air before, and, and I think people get a little bit nervous when I talk about the alt-right as interesting because we're supposed to be morally outraged and then stop. But I want to examine it because what they share in common with Machiavelli is a notion that the ability to exert the will itself constitutes virtue. One of Machiavelli's revolutions in The Prince uh, is that he uses the Italian word virtu, uh, or virtu, pardon me, uh, to talk about strength uh, but when he talks about it, it's never strength in the service of some transcendent eternal end. It is strength itself. It's the ability to wield power in the world. Nietzsche does the same thing. And what I see uh, when I do read up on the alt-right is that, you know, when they, for instance, you know, take on the symbolism of national socialism, when they rally behind a politician like Donald Trump, when they do these things, what they admire is not necessarily uh, the racism of an Adolf Hitler or the uh, consumerism of a Donald Trump, but what they admire is the ability and the will to make things happen in the world rather than having things happen to them. And like I said, I mean, you know, this is terrifying to be sure for a, a Christian like me because, you know, the Lord that I worship is the one who suffered, right? So, I mean, you know, my ethics is fundamentally built on uh, faithful witness in the face of suffering, but it is fascinating because it is such a stark opposite uh, to, again, the, the ethical tradition that I've inherited. Uh, now, I, I realize that, you know, 
if some of your listeners, you know, hear me say that Donald Trump is the polar opposite of Christianity, they might get irritated with that. Uh, and I'm willing to hear an argument to counter it. Eh, I don't know if you'll get a very strong one. But <laughs> yes, I can agree with you. I talk about politics a lot. and Many of my opinions are also things that a lot of people disagree with. So that's very perfectly good. fine. The The other person I interviewed prior to you, um, it's been a week or so, but he is a libertarian or anarchist. So very far view on one side. Then I've got my next interview will be with someone who leans very much on the left and believes that there is a strong role to play for the state and centralized government. So we, we definitely have a variety of views on here. Good, good, good. But yes, overall, um, I really like a lot of these ideas that you're talking about, and I think you did a great job at really introducing us to the context of a lot of these parallels that I will be digging into later on in the season. So I want to say thank you, number one, for presenting all this to us and bringing this and being willing to come on here and join me for this project and presentation and number two, if there is anything that you want to promote yourself or direct people to where they can hear a little more about you and the things that you do, please um, present us with that as well. Certainly. Uh, if you go to ChristianHumanist.org, that is the website for the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, the show that I'm a host on, the Christian Humanist Podcast, is its longest running program. Uh, we also have the interview show, Christian Humanist Profiles. We have a show uh, called the Christian Feminist Podcast, one called The City of Man, which is politics and faith, The Book of Nature, which is science and faith, uh, and one of our newest additions is a series called Core Curriculum, uh, The Core Curriculum, pardon me, uh, my friend Michael always wants me to add the direct article there, um, but The Core Curriculum is a program in which hosts from all of our shows mix up the rosters and get together to talk about some of the most influential books uh, from human history. So, so far we have series out on Homer's Iliad and on Plato's Republic. I think we're doing Sappho next. And over the years, we're going to try to read slowly through a lot of these grand books. Okay, yeah, that sounds very interesting. And I definitely will be directing people to your podcasts and your projects if they want to learn more, especially about things related to classical literature and these classical ideas and theology, these types of things. I think that especially the Christian Humanist podcast, that's one I've listened to a few dozen episodes of so far. I went back in the back catalog and got a lot of things that related to some of the things I'm researching, and it was very enlightening. I really enjoyed it. So I'll definitely Good. be directing people to you as well. So thank you again for coming on, and thank you for being a part of this, and hopefully we'll get to talk in the future. Very good. Thank you. So that concludes my interview with Nathan Gilmore. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you all for all the support that you have given in many different ways, the ratings, reviews, word of mouth, all the different things that you do. Thank you especially to the patrons that support financially. I greatly appreciate that. Next episode will be the beginning of another interview with another guest. So we've had an anarchist perspective on some of these things. We have had now a reformed Christian perspective on some of these things. And next will be a Catholic perspective on the historical happenings as well as theology, Catholic theology, why they took the positions they took and why they did some of the things that they did and how that plays out and how some of those parallels play with the modern church, things like that. So 
hopefully that will be something that will pique your interest as well. And when we get done with that one, I'll move out of the more religious-focused episodes, and I'll get into two interviews that will be more focused on the historical content. They are two hosts that have podcasts that are focused on history in this time period, and so we will talk with them in those following episodes and get a historical perspective. So that's kind of roughly where we're going in the next few episodes. Most of these interviews seem like they are taking long enough that I'm splitting them up into two parts. And one I know will be split up into three parts. It was a two and a half hour long interview. So that's probably longer than most of you want to sit through in one sitting. And if you do, then just listen to them back to back. That works out just fine. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support. I'm out of here. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.